From the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth. A worldly story told by a group of travellers. A history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's four, 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 triple, triple, triple Z. This is Radio in Colour, and today is our last crack at the 1990s. My name is Kim. This time we look at some of the preoccupations of high-powered people and we continue our examination of the lives of queer-identified people and non-norms during that decade. We turn our gaze on the language of politicians, the work of scientists and the struggles of activists. But now it's time to get out your toolkit because we have the hefty body of language on our operating table. Let's start dissecting. I saw the best minds of my generation Destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical I should be allowed to glue my poster I should be allowed to think I should be allowed to glue my poster So what were some of the more commonly used words of the 90s? Well, coming out of the economically focused 80s there was a good deal more focus what was then called economic rationalism in Australia, and what came to be known more pejoratively as neoliberalism. There was also the sense for a time that we were headed into what George Bush Sr. called a new world order, a rule-based world informed by the shared values of democratic governance and liberal economic systems. It was called globalisation. Here's British sociologist Anthony Giddens giving a speech on the subject in 1999. We live in a world of transformations affecting almost every aspect of what we do. I travel a lot to speak abroad. I haven't been to a single country recently where globalisation isn't being intensively discussed. The global spread of the term is evidence of the very developments to which it refers. Every business guru talks about it. No political speech is complete without reference to it. Given its sudden popularity, we shouldn't be surprised that the meaning of the notion isn't always clear or that an intellectual reaction has set in against it. The radicals argue that not only is globalisation very real but that its consequences can be felt everywhere. The global marketplace, they say, is much more developed than even two or three decades ago and is indifferent to national borders. Nations have lost most of the sovereignty they once had and politicians have lost most of their capability to influence events. The era of the nation-state is over. The notion of globalisation according to the sceptics, is an ideology put about by free marketeers who wish to dismantle welfare systems and cut back on state expenditures. Well, who is right in this debate? I think it is the radicals. The level of world trade today is much higher than it ever was before and involves a much wider range of goods and services. Instantaneous electronic communication isn't just a way in which news or information is conveyed more quickly. Its existence alters 
the very texture of our lives, rich and poor alike. When the image of Nelson Mandela may be more familiar to us than the face of our next-door neighbor, something has changed in the very nature of our everyday experience. The reach of media technologies is growing with each wave of innovation. It is wrong to think of globalization as just concerning the big systems, like the world financial order. Globalization isn't only about what is out there, remote and far away from the individual. It is an in-here phenomenon too, influencing intimate and personal aspects of our lives. That, of course, was the world after the fall of the Soviet Union, with the US at the peak of a unipolar world, a little different to the one we find ourselves in today. Going back a little further, we've probably all heard this one. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. The proclamation which you have just heard read by the Governor-General's official secretary was countersigned Malcolm Fraser. go down in Australian history from Remembrance Day 1975 as Kerr's Kerr. Which is a lot wittier than this stuff, right? On the elements of the program itself, firstly, we have a $15 billion plan. Order. The Prime Minister resume his seat. The Leader of the Opposition Thank you, on the Mr. Point Speaker, of order. Relevance. The Prime Minister wasn't asked about order any the, alternatives. He was the, asked about Australian the Opposition will resume jobs. his seat. The Leader of the Opposition will resume his seat. I'm sure that the Prime Minister is quite aware of what the question was. The Prime Minister will respond to the question. The Prime Minister. Thirdly, the Prime Minister will resume his seat. Thank you regarding the G20 to Opposition Leader Bill Shorten, who very generously did not deliver one of his headline-grabbing anti-government zingers this week. <laughs> it was a selfless act during Australia's quest for world relevancy and is to be saluted. Instead, he set up a great joke for Tony Abbott. They make a good team. And it just shows you what these two could accomplish if only they worked together more. Check it out. Bill sets it up and Tony knocks it out of the park. <laughs> Turned into a political football and now um, I think they look, they've got egg on their face. <laughs> well, I had bacon and eggs for breakfast, so... Uh, uh... <laughs> no, it's not the same, is it? That's public discourse, though, which tends to be a little safer and a lot more dull than the language of parliamentary debate as this piece by Dominic Cansdale points out. Across the world, regardless of political ideology, language or culture, parliamentary debate shares one common feature. It can be really, really boring. This domestic violence awareness month uh, resolution. I want to commend uh, Judge Green for uh, working with me on this issue. But not here in Australia. He thinks it's hilarious that Andrew Zaff was stabbed in his home and hit with a piece of wood last weekend. 
Ranging from personal insults to political stunts complete with props, Question Time in Australian Parliament can be downright puerile. The Leader of the Opposition will remove himself from the chamber. Resume your seat. Resume your seat. The Leader of the Opposition today has said to that public school that he's coming for it. When he advocated up the order. well, that'd be too. Yeah. Like Jack the Ripper, he is going to be there wielding his knife to cut money out of that the public Prime school. Minister That's will what he's promised today. Leave immediately under 94A. Under 94A. Leave under 94A. And to continually ignore that the member for McKellar. Australian Question Time can actually make for great TV, full of punchlines and one-liners so sweet that it puts professional comedians to shame. But when it came to the broader public being able to watch these shenanigans go down, Australian Parliament was a bit behind the times. Old Parliament House never had TV cameras, but even after the new Australian Parliament was opened in 1988, politicians from both major parties were reluctant to embrace televised question time. But the argument in favour of it was very strong indeed. Polling at the time showed that 70% of Australians used television as their main and almost exclusive source of information. On top of that, $50 million had already been spent on wiring up both the Senate and the House of Representatives for television broadcasting. Yet still, both sides of politics feared how televised question time would affect their chances in the upcoming 1990 election, although Labor had other reasons to oppose it, but more on that later. Finally, on the 31st of May 1990, Liberal Senate backbencher Amanda Vanstone convinced her party colleagues to support the broadcasting of Senate proceedings. Vanstone also argued that precedents had been set elsewhere, including when the House of Reps in the United States began televising their proceedings in 1979, the British House of Lords in 1985, and even the Kremlin in Soviet Russia televised their political debates, and their system wasn't exactly democratic. But back to the Hawke government and why they opposed cameras in Parliament. Although Bob Hawke himself actually favoured the idea, other leading Labour figures opposed the move basically because of this guy. Down a vow of a fresh start. <laughs> How are you going over there, Curly? Oh, oh darling. That's right, treasurer of the time and soon to be PM, Mr Paul Keating. Twice you've had a chance to take the opposition leadership. The first time you rang your friend next to you and offered it to him. This, this time you sat overseas while John got it from Hawk's Nest. <laughs> now, when I told our caucus last year that you were a low-altitude flyer, Order. I was right, wasn't I? Keating's fierce and ruthless debating style in Question Time was both revered and feared in Australian politics, but what was an effective strategy in private came across as a bit douchey in public. Just listen to this quip with the then opposition leader John Hewson in 1992. I asked the Prime Minister, if you are so confident about your view of fight back, why won't you call an early election? Yeah. 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 
That's language used under the protection of parliamentary privilege. What about politicians' interaction with the general public? Going back to Gough Whitlam again, he famously had an altercation with a man on the campaign trail. As the story goes, the man asked his opinion on abortion, to which Gough replied that he's for it and, in your case, sir, we should make it retrospective. A little further on, we could even see these kinds of exchanges between politicians and the public in the 90s. Here's Paul Keating talking to an angry constituent about the Marlborough High Court decision on Talkback Radio. Hey, hey. 9068899, the rest of Australia, 0802280. Our fax number, as you know, is 02906 With me in the studio, the Prime Minister of Australia, Paul Keating. Good morning and welcome. I've heard you make these claims before, but I point out that this judgment is regarding the Murray Island people and the state of Queensland. It did not say, well, listen now, we're going to make this all applicable to the mainland. Oh, I think, well, I think you, fail, you fail to understand what the decision means. Ap- uh, apart from that, it would have set a precedent. But, yeah. but, you have, but you, you, you're not understanding the, the, what the decision means. But Mr Keating is trying to have a settlement out of court, put it that way. No, we're not. We're not trying to do anything of the kind. Well, what are you talking about, Commonwealth? Well, what's your, what's, your, what's your beef? I mean, don't, uh, I mean, don't you think that Aboriginal Australians are entitled to any land that is theirs? they should be treated the same as every other. Well, OK. There, what's your problem? I have to buy my land. Why can't they buy theirs? But forget about that racial <laughs> business. Well, well, hang on. Let's let's get let's get an answer to that question. You had to buy your land. Why can't they buy theirs? What's the prime minister got to say to that? Well, if 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 we if there'd have been a treaty here in 1788, there couldn't be a treaty, Mister. Uh, then uh, then then the thing is, uh, maybe may may be that that the crown might have bought its land. There couldn't be a treaty, Mister. Keating. You know that because there was too many tribes and clans and whatever. Oh, I, well, I, I, thank you for your anthropological advice. Well, that's in history. I'm not only talking from history. Right, now... I think you're talking prejudice mostly, aren't you? If you're talking a little bit... That's of what you're really talking. You don't want to see... You don't All this stuff is important because rhetoric and wit are some of the tools politicians use to get their points across. But as well as using these weapons to call things to attention and to try to drive change, it can also be used to try to do the opposite. According to founding editor of the Griffith Review, Julian Schultz, John Howard took that approach to wind down the sort of discussion about our nation's past you heard just before. I think that one of my sort of deepest reservations about what happened during the Howard years was that he quite deliberately stopped a discussion and an interrogation about Australia's past, about its cultural identity, about the forging of a sort of new society. And that had been going along as a quite active sort of thing during the, especially during the Keating years. And how, you know, quite deliberately said, we've done enough navel gazing, we don't need to be doing that anymore. Let's just get on with things. And I think that by hitting the pause button in that way, the sort of development of a more sophisticated sort of sense of cultural engagement, of the ability to deal with change, the ability to accommodate human rights, the ability to think differently about, you know, really pressing issues, just stalled. And so we're back doing this sort of running on the spot for for such a long time rather than saying, hey, look, you know, there are really big issues in terms of movement of people around the world, of response to you know climate change, of response to um, 
all, all the sort of big issues of the decade. But because we, we weren't encouraged to be confident as Australians talking about how we might change, we were very reluctant to get involved in really sort of forward-looking discussions about how we might engage with the rest of the world. It's been a dark time as a result of that sort of let's just get on with life as, as we sort of imagine it once was. Apart from the content of what people say, there's something to be said for the musicality of speech. Certain ways of talking just sound better than others. They're more engaging. But what does this mean for politics? Composer Robert Davidson works with the human voice in his music, including quite a few famous ones. So the music that I'm interested in writing often uses the speech, recording of speech, to create the melodies because there's always melody in speech and people don't always recognise this. So I'm very interested in in highlighting the melody that's actually already there in speech but that we miss because we're so focused on the meaning of the words. And some of the ways you can do that is by, say, repeating it or playing along with it and actually playing the same melody on instruments that you hear from the speech or by accompanying it with, um, you know, harmonies and chords which emphasise the melodies. Sometimes I've just interested in taking sort of quite well-known speeches. One, One of the first ones I did like that was Gough Whitlam's Well May We Say God Save the Queen, which turned to, turned out to be a waltz in B flat major the way he says it. And that was also because of an, an interest in going back in time to that day because I remember the day of the 1975 I'm old enough to remember it I was uh, I was in primary school and I just remember it being a really big intense experience and um, I lived in Canberra and so listening to that recording it was a way to take myself back to my childhood self and then I guess put a musical framework around a musical frame around it to make it special and like a memorial and, he said to me three weeks ago when I was sworn in, Mr. Keaton, we'll be relying on your advice and the advice of your fellow members. And I guess there's an element um, of you know working with speeches about um, I guess falling falling in love again with the art of rhetoric, one of the oldest mm, arts in the world. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And finding that that can actually be in a voice which may not be expected to be so beautiful like Julia Gillard's because <laughs> I think that misogyny speech was really good rhetoric yeah and it was saying something very important about sexism and misogyny by this man I will not so yeah absolutely and the, the, the power that that can have to make change the most important thing about that is that this is a recession that Australia had to have this is a recession this is a recession this is a recession that Australia had to have by 1990 no Australian child will be living in poverty the That music mix you heard there was made by Robert Davidson and his group Topology. From the language of politics to the quest for knowledge, we continue our show on a reassuring note, reviewing the science problems scientists solved in the decade before the new millennium. Let's take a look at some of the issues that puzzle scientists no more, because good news is welcome, even if it's old news. I guess a term that I heard a lot when I was at university was, you know, unlocking the secrets of the genome.
the biggest thing that happened in the 90s was the sequencing of the human genome project, which properly really started in the mid-1980s. That's when the planning for it began. And then it commenced in 1990. It took 13 years to be completed and it cost almost $3 billion. It's not just the information that's in the Human Genome Project, although that really revolutionised medicine and, and the sorts of things that you can do in medicine in terms of disease diagnostics or something that's coming up at the moment is something called pharmagenomics, looking at an individual's genome and how that will influence the effects of a particular drug. So all of these things um, are flow-on effects. But outside of medicine, the technologies that developed during the sequencing of the, um, the human genome and the analytical techniques, they're, they're used so incredibly broadly, like it, it's, that sort of biotechnology is ubiquitous. Everyone has a genome. We are all human and it's the basis. It is the word that means all of the DNA, all of the hereditary material of an organism. The DNA is the script uh, for life. It's the stuff that tells one gene to make its machine in muscle cells and another gene to make its machine in brain cells. In fact, that DNA code represents solutions evolved by life three billion years ago in some cases. The human genome is essentially our shared inheritance. Bacteria have their genomes, and dogs have their genomes, and plants have their genomes, and we have our genomes. Our DNA is almost identical with chimpanzee DNA, it's only about 2% different. Now people probably aren't surprised that we share our genes with monkeys, but it turns out that we share about 50% of our genes with a tiny little roundworm, presumably a billion years ago or 500 million years ago we had a common ancestor with the worms. And what we learn about those genes in worms and flies and yeast, now we can translate back to humans. I guess even like, you know, just in my short research career when I started um, my PhD, uh, I looked at these regions of the genome called microsatellites. They're just uh, short tandem repeats of, uh, of um, nucleotides. Um, and it would take an incredibly long time to analyze. You had to uh, radioactively label these bloody things and run these in incredibly um, hard to read gels and then spend hours over a light box scoring, you know. And then it was only maybe five years, five or six years later when I was working on the rock wallabies where you put it all in the machine and you get some numbers out at the end that you can just pump straight into whatever analytical program you want. It was, um, it was a breathtakingly quick change, I think, you know, um, and a very welcome change, obviously. It was, um, it used to be a very painful, painful, laborious process. Nowadays, I guess a lot of people who aren't directly working in, um, in genetics, and who have the money can just send off their samples and get back the data, and that's a, that's a perfectly acceptable thing to do, you know. Um, yeah. Things like GPS technologies were also um, also definitely revolutionised zoology and um, uh, and uh, lots of other fields of biology, like being able to combine genomic data with um, behavioural data with really reliable uh, location data. 
um, fairly easily. You know, you can walk around with your GPS. You, know? <laughs> you can just put a little dot exactly where you caught this animal or where you collected the poo, in, um, in my case. Um, yeah, I guess that was definitely a very big technological advancement as well. But for me, it really looked like from the inside, I don't know what it looks like from the outside, like a really um, steadily growing increase in the number and sophistication of technologies. It just kept going and going like a beautiful um, logarithmic curve, you know, It's uh, and it's still going. And for me, I think it's exciting, sometimes a little bit terrifying, not really knowing what's what's going to happen next. I, you know, every generation, I guess, says, looking back, you know, I never would have foreseen that. For me, it's, um, there's so many things that I didn't foresee and so many things changing so quickly. It's exciting and, yeah, I guess, as a scientist, you have to be conscious of the, the possibilities that these things will eventually be used for evil instead of good. And so there is, you know, a small element of, this is out of my control. <laughs> I don't know what will happen next. I don't think anybody understood how broad the applications would be. You know, people were like, yes, we'll be able to clone humans, which is something that hasn't actually really happened, or maybe it has. Us. But, uh, you know, people thought about it in those terms of cloning. And, you know, Dolly the sheep was, was um, an animal that was cloned, but nobody really, I think, foresaw the huge suite of, um, of applications and the rise of the, you know, what's called the life science industry, you know, down to things like using cells and enzymes to produce detergents or, uh, or other sorts of chemicals. You know, that all of these sorts of spin-offs which happened because of the huge amount of money and time put into the Human Genome Project. I guess the rise of computing and the rise of the internet and the rise of genomics are like a, a beautiful synergy which has resulted in, in some incredible technological innovations. Um, all of these things that I talked about associated with the Human Genome Project and one of the reasons why it took such a long time to sequence the genome and why it's so quick now is this rise in computing power and rise in communication, I guess, between scientists. And it's almost unthinkable to me that I can go Google a genome and I can download the entire sequence for free. <laughs> um, and then I can do whatever um, analytics on it that I want. And then I can email my results to a friend in another country to check that I've done the right thing. That sort of thing for somebody of my age was really not um, not something that I anticipated. 1994, not that many people really had computers. I, you know, hand wrote the majority of my assignments for, for undergrad. And then I think by the time I started my PhD, that's, uh, my honours, sorry, that's when I, you know, I had a dedicated computer given to me by the university. And now I have a cheap $800 laptop that I can do whatever I want with. It's, um, yeah, it is really rather incredible. The annotated sequence of the human genome these days costs closer to $2,000. Um, only takes a couple of days. There's a company that claims that it can do it in a matter of hours for $1,000. Uh, so it's a really incredible difference. Well, in the mid-1980s, a few people began to imagine that we might mount a carefully orchestrated attempt to read the entire sequence of the human genome. The thought of sequencing the whole human genome was utterly outrageous when it was first proposed in 1985. 
People could barely sequence a couple of hundred letters of DNA at a time. It took a tremendous change in technology to make that possible. People use the genetic component um, of of human behaviour, for example, as an excuse, you know. But we're, you know, we've evolved to be like this, you know. If you don't mind me dipping into some some feminism here for a moment, um, it's fascinating reading things like men rights activists um, pages because there is always somebody who comes up with, but men have just evolved to be like this, you know. And you go, well. <laughs> That's not actually true. Uh, you know, there's certain things which are definitely hardwired in humans, but there's a lot of flexibility, you know, a lot of behavioral flexibility, a lot of um, flexibility in how we express the genes that we're born with. Look, I think a positive thing that's happened um, in the last few years is a recognition of the importance of science communication. So I have a few friends who, after their PhDs, went on and, and you know, and got involved in science communication or after um, their undergrad. Uh, it's now seen as a field in its own right. Uh, I think people forget that communication is a skill that must be taught, that people often think they're very good at communicating, and those people are usually not very good at it after all. Uh and it's very useful. I mean, science is obviously very complex um, and it's useful to be able to explain something in a simple way and make it digestible, all for the purposes of educating people. I mean, you want informed and educated debate around science. You want people to know when they, they vote for someone or um, when they influence the economy with their purchasing power. You want them to make informed decision decisions and you can't expect everybody to go back to the primary literature and like wade through everything. So I think that sort of pop science thing, it gets hijacked horribly and, you know, some of my um, least favourite things are, yes, this, but we evolved to be like this, the whole left brain, right brain thing. No, that's not a thing. Please stop saying that. <laughs> but, uh, but overall I think... The rise in science communication has led to more informed debate around scientific topics. Obviously, there's a few blind spots like around climate change, um, but uh, but that's more a misinformation rather than um, than people not understanding things. Yeah. I mean, for me, this is a good thing that I've learnt, that in order for your science to make a difference, it needs to be um, taken up in a bunch of human systems and the stuff that you really have to work through to make your science work in the real world. 
especially for things like conservation. Scientists like myself have been trained to think in a particular way. We've been trained to think analytically. Um, we've been trained to think that if we have the information we need, we will make better decisions. The rest of the world doesn't necessarily work like that. Giving people the more information, the correct information, won't necessarily lead them to make good decisions. It might entrench them more in a view, you know, that that's completely emotionally based, you know, and that's that's a reality you have to work with. Australia's point of view there's still a huge element of exploration in terms of our wildlife. Um, for a wealthy developed nation we know an embarrassingly small amount about the majority of our wildlife. My friend actually works on a government funded uh, program called Bush Blitz where they go out and they do surveys and they keep discovering new species. That's still a thing that you can do, you know, and not just, you know, a new species of bacteria, but, you know, there's the odd lizard, you know, there's a lot of invertebrates, obviously. And in terms of conservation, people often forget that they're the important things. I mean, I love a cute and furry animal more than anyone, believe you me, but in terms of ecosystem function, I'm very cognizant of the fact that it's the little things, the creepy crawlies, and even smaller than that, you know, the um, sort of bacteria that live in the soil, but that's, that's the really crucial stuff that we need to know a lot more about. And I guess in terms of conservation, there's still a lot of exploration to be done around what you'd call the soil microbiome, what lives in the soil, how it interacts, you know, all of the worms and all the other microorganisms, all of the bacteria, all of the fungi. There's still so much we need to learn there, so there's definitely still exploration to be done. It's just not the same as hopping on a ship and reaching the Galapagos and going, it's everywhere, beautiful big things, giant tortoises and dodos and whatnot. Yeah, <laughs> so it looks different, but there's still an element of exploration. Just listening to Justina Paplinska and Karolina Kaliaba chat about the human genome, science communication, and the new rules of discovery. So while there is nothing new under the sun, everything under the sun is still subject to scientific theories and social change. So too in Queensland in the 1990s, social attitudes were slowly expanding the notion of human sexuality and gender. Norms and attitudes are slow to change and in the 90s, nonconformists struggled to fit in. We now hear about how difficult it was to be gay and black in Queensland at this time. And we also listen to the story of a woman who changed the rules for transgender people. In 1985, the right-wing Christian fundamentalists in the Queensland government introduced a bill to ban gays and non-normal looking people from licensed premises. And this happened at a time when gay bashing was a regular occurrence. 
In Queensland and South Australia, the entrenched systemic violence against non-heterosexual males was evident in the continued existence of the gay panic defence. As recently as 2015, a South Australian man, Michael John Lindsay, successfully argued that a victim he bashed to death in 2011 had caused him to lose control by making unwanted sexual advances. In May 2015, Queensland Labor Attorney General Yvette Darth moved to abolish the defence from Queensland law, overturning a long-standing legal bias widely thought to encourage hate crimes against homosexual men. The decision came after years of campaigning started by Queensland Catholic priest Father Paul Kelly, who was appalled by the use of the gay panic defence in a trial over the bashing death of a man in the courtyard of his own Maryborough church. With mainstream social attitudes and legal impediments to equality, being queer in Queensland was never easy. More so, also to be black. Doug Curry from 4ZZZ Murray Programme and Gay Waves discusses. Did you experience much in the way of, I mean, oh, silly question maybe, but what sort of racism did you experience? And uh, I'm particularly interested in, in racism from within the gay community. Right. Maybe even today, because well, it's blatant, I know. Um, I don't know. Uh, the, the Alliance Hotel has been going for quite a number of years. It's, uh, it, was, it, it was known to be a, a gay night spot. And in around about the 60s, um, early 60s, up until about the 70s, um, they, uh, a lot of dark people used to drink downstairs. And the gay people used to drink upstairs in the, in the saloon bar. And that was the, the, the in place to go at the time. Um, <coughs> because my family were downstairs and knew knew that I was gay and, and most of my friends were gay, um, I used to always pop downstairs and, and, and see them and then, you know, I'd be with my family and then I'd be upstairs with my friends. So, you know, I had a really, I had a good, good really good time. And um, <coughs> on one occasion I'd gone up a little bit too early for the, for the tops part to open the gay um, bar to open and I went downstairs to have a few drinks with uh, with, with I thought some of my family might have been in there but they wasn't there and I was, my sister-in-law and I had gone in because she, she knew some of the gay people um, that uh, I'd knocked around with and she got to know them as really good friends and we walked into the bottom bar and I ordered a jug of beer and a gin squash for her and she we, we were served by the barman and then the manager sort of came down the uh, aisle and he called the barman over he says that's their last drink then all that's get served in here and he came straight over and he said um, no he asked to get the, the beer off us and I said why I said well, you've just sold it to us you know is now money good enough or something and he said I'm sorry but um, the manager doesn't allow um, black people to drink in this bar here anymore and I said so you know is it going to be uh, I'm barred down here, but I can go upstairs because I'm gay, uh, and I think that uh, that made me uh, really angry. And I wasn't thinking about my homosexuality; then I was thinking about my Aboriginality. Mm. Fast forward to the late 1990s through to the 2000s, when the house music and electronic scene had a large following in Brisbane. 
One of the leading lights of the homegrown scene was a transgender woman, Jandy Rainbow, who talks to 4ZZZ's Linda Rose about growing up transgender and how she changed Queensland law. The following interview discusses the issue of sexual assault and may upset some listeners. Well, I grew up in the in the 60s, and so that was my you know, my childhood was really the 60s and 70s, and it was pretty rough. I, it was obvious at a very young age that I was not like everyone else, um, not just in my physical expression, but also to polio from the immunisations, the early ones, which. There was probably about a dozen people in total in Australia that that happened to. So that compounded the two things. And I, one thing I would have to say is it, it, in many ways, I, it was very hard to tell which was actually harder. Dealing with a journey of polio, which was very difficult, and what I actually had to confront being a transgender child, occasionally coming out during that process. It was very violent, to be honest, and progressively got more violent. When you're really young, people will accept a little bit of femininity in a child who is who was meant to be in a boy's role. And as each year that you get older, those sweet, sort of endearing little qualities start to really become like thorns around you. I would have been probably around seven. That was when it really hit me that I was different, that I was not like this old saying in those times, you know, boys were made of slugs and snails and puppy dogs tails and girls were sugar and spice and all things nice. That was the first time I, I think I went from having this natural euphoria about being feminine. It never really bothered me until then. I hadn't been taught to be frightened of it till about that age. But when they had that play, it really hit me that this was a message for me a bit because I was not one or the other and I knew that even then. Sometimes when I was more bold at school and more daring, I almost got bashed less. Um, I remember the first, like there was um, one time when we went to school and at a new school, and some you know issues had popped up, and I my sister had given me this cardigan, and so this whole week, which was like from the fifties with beads on it, I started wearing that to school, and I certainly copped a lot of wallops <laughs> then to the extent that it made me stop doing it. And then my mother and I negotiated a deal that um, if I just just dressed like a girl in the home, then that would be okay and I would be able to wear more of what I wanted. So that's how my family dealt with it. But I had already sort of pretty much exposed myself as a big uh, sissy <laughs> to, at school. It was incredibly violent, but it was, and it was also hard to tell whether I was sometimes whether I was being beaten up for being a sissy or for a disability. As it, the years progressed, it was more because of me being feminine that I got beaten, and quite savagely sometimes. Were you the victim of sexual assault? Uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, yes. Not in primary school. I, in high school. 
and I used to go to this school called en Enfield High School, and when I first went to there, for the first three months there was not really any hassle because all the the new kids that were in the, in the first year, they're all a bit nervous, but and my grades were had significantly improved. But by the second term, it was unsafe for me to go to the toilet um, uh, because I would get raped or beaten when my head pushed down the toilet. And I would have to either hold on and wait till the class was in and sometimes the teachers wouldn't let me go. You know, and they'd say you had all lunch time. And my only protection actually at school really came in the form of girls. Because all the cool girls at school loved me. I was really quite a bit of a fashion icon even at that age. And there was also a couple of boys that used to sort of negotiate. There was three actually, and I won't name them, though I do know their names. They would come round to my home and knock on the window and I would have to do them sexual favours or else they would organise big beatings for me at school. And in order for me to know that that was the real threat, they, ha they did that first and then, you know, made me do the sexual favours and then said, next time we won't beat you, but that's what you'll get if you don't do it every time. So, and it just progressed and <clears throat> I wagged uh, um, 165 days, one year off school truanting because it was so violent and I got put into a home, a boy's home and I was, at the time I had full long blonde hair I had been on hormones for a, a while, about probably maybe six months, no it would have been about four or five months because it was towards the end of the year and yeah I got put into this place called Windana Boys Home and I was in between the ages of like I was 14 and so they had they could put me either with 14 and under or 14 to 18 and they popped me in the 14 to 18 year old for one night and then the next morning I didn't have to explain to them what had happened I'm not going to say it but you can they could smell what the boys had done to me yeah it was horrible <laughs> it was really horrible then after that, I got sent to an all-boys school um, and I only lasted there a short time and they would follow me around the school and, you know, would wait their opportunity to either get me at the back of a shed or this, that and the other. Um, and then uh, it, it got so serious. Uh, my doctor uh, sent away to get me a special exemption from school because I was anemic from blood loss. I had lost so much blood towards that because that was when it was really getting hostile then.
how did you first get involved in Triple Z? I mean, I've been involved in electronic music, you know, on a professional, a highly professional level, probably since about 1980. And, you know, just progressed over the years, fumbled and stumbled. And eventually in 1996, I moved up to Brisbane because I have polio, and although you could not really notice it. And I just moved up here because I preferred the warmer weather. And I started performing just for myself. I decided I wouldn't do bands anymore. I would just make my own music and play solo. Well, actually, I wasn't even planning to play music when I moved up. I was making it for myself. The boyfriend that I had at the time sneakily said, oh, can you make me a couple of tapes up for the car? And he had done that. So when, if someone said, oh, look, you know, wow, she plays with me. And he did that on a party that we went to. And he said, yeah, this is what she does. And they put it and they went, what? You know, you need to be playing. And then from playing around the traps, um, of course, I got involved with Triple Z and became a subscriber and did a lot of, a couple of market days and still love going to them. <laughs> You're involved in the campaign for transgender rights. How did you use Triple Z in that campaign? Well, interestingly, it kind of um, became... I didn't really intend to gain as much, one could say, fruition. <laughs> My, the first thing I did with Triple Z was um, to ask them to include tr uh, transgender on the enrolment forms. And at first they said, oh, but don't most transgender people want to just identify as male and female and I said well yes that's why that may be true there are others that don't relate to the binary system at all having that third option not only does it allow for people who are in the middle to have an, a, a concept on paper that they belong it also does the same to every everyone else who reads that paper. They go, oh, yeah, so this does exist. You know, it stops the word from being something that is just ghettoized rather than included in culture. It was very easy to get Triple Z to do that. They said go and get a few, you know, signatures and, you know, around the place and see how much support... When I came back, they said, oh, you didn't need that many, Janity. You know, one sheet would have done it. You know, that. Then after I had a really bad experience in 1999 in hospital, being denied medical attention, and I won't go into the whole lot of what happened, but it, it delayed a diagnosis for two years on post-polio syndrome that really impacted on my life had I had the diagnosis two years earlier. So I just started to campaign, first of all, with ATSA, the Australian Transgender Support Association of Queensland. They had been lobbying for a, well over a decade, you know, and towards the last three years, I kind of joined in on their campaign and I put in a, a thing to the Anti-Discrimination Act, knowing that I would fail. But I wanted to use a case and fight a case that I almost had a technicality to get in on. When everyone at Triple Z knew what I was doing, say if something came on the radio of interest, a lot of people through Z were really genuinely trying to help me and they would ring up and say, oh, this guy's talking on, it might be... And the first person I got onto was 
this Skype from QUT Ron Fry, one of the head psychologists from counselling and psychology students. And I rang him up and said, oh, while well, he was just after a triple Z and said, oh, do you know that we're not covered by the Anti-Discrimination Act? And he said, oh, that's disgusting. No, I'm, I meant to know these things. I want you to come in and talk to my students about your experiences. So then John Frame from Queer Radio then uh, rang me up one day and said, oh, Jandy, I've got this really um, amazing recording of Peter Beattie. And he says all this stuff you know, about, you know, his being a Christian and doesn't want to discriminate. And I sort of pretty much decided to cut and paste that up into a track. I was part of, a little part of ATSA's campaign, but the gender F-K one was had to sort of be seen as my own because it was a little bit too confronting. And during that time, we had to get 20,000 signatures and... I didn't have, at the time, uh, the internet where I was. And most of those signatures were got by... I got the most. Quentin Ellison from Diversity and Talk here at Triple Z got the second largest amount of signatures and the third amount was collected by the Australian Transgender Support Association. So I probably got about... 7,000 signatures just walking the streets and going to different events and cafes and anywhere where I'd, I'd always have one on me and, you know, I had people spit in my face at the time <laughs> a couple of times, but most people, when they heard what, they would either say, no, I'm not interested in signing or they would sign. If I was doing that campaign now, there would be a lot more support, I feel. The support that I got through Triple Z really helped. Linda Rose also helped. She did a lot of interviews. Yeah, you did, Linda. That was a really interesting thing, actually, uh, when you rang and interviewed the people from the gender clinics in Melbourne. And this was their answer. You're wasting your time, Jandy, trying to get anything to happen with changing the anti-discrimination legislation. It'll never change. So you did a few interviews, so that was really good. And also, too, just I made the about 50 copies of the CD, so, you know, Phil Numshub, he's kind of did a bit of a, quite a nice distorted remix on it. To be honest, I had a great deal of support through Triple Z, and I don't think it would have been so easy or possible even without it, because... When I put the tr track on, that made fun of the parrot, the fact that he's a politician saying he believes that people are equal and the law goes against it. And also Peter Beatty had been, while, again, I'll reiterate, while I had lobbied solidly for three years, Christine Johnston and Gina Mather from ATSA, I mean, they put in well over 13 or 15 years at a, at, and Peter Beatty really knew that this needed changing and so that he was dragging it out as long as he could and fortunately it changed. I think on the, uh, November on 2001, um, they announced it and the act came into full action on that's right, April Fool's Day um, uh, on 2002. 
We leave the gender issues of Queensland with a track from Jendi Rainbow. This is Love Child. eclectic account of language, science and sexuality in the 1990s. You've been listening to episode 16 of Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Brisbane's Radio 4ZZZ. We acknowledge the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and of our partners in this production team. Radio in Colour is made by a team of young producers from 15 different countries including Iran, Sudan, Uruguay, Syria and Australia. This episode of Radio in Colour was recorded at the Edge Studios in the State Library of Queensland, as well as radios 4AB and 4ZZZ. We would be lost without Brisbane's cultural institutions, which have made us all feel very welcome. The Multicultural Development Association of Queensland is also a proud sponsor of Radio in Colour. This show is produced by Carolina Kaliaba, Stephen Regal and Kim Stewart. Ni Adepoyibi is our sound engineer and Blair Martin is our trainer. My name is Kim Stewart. Special thanks to our guest today, Robert Davidson from the UQ School of Music, Julianne Schultz, who is the editor of Brisbane's own Griffith Review, Peter Roy, who told the story about test driving the floor of the Brisbane powerhouse, Justina Paplinska, Doug Curry and Jandy Rainbow. Thanks to our guest producers from 4ZZZ, Linda Rose and Dominique Cansdale. You can listen back to our stories on the 4ZZZ website, 4ZZZFM.org.au. Thanks for listening.
Oh,